Mosta, Carolyn Dui a Croisoi Starlight Radio Dreams presents Kerdoriaith Celtica. Good evening. I'm Carolyn, and welcome to Starlight Radio Dreams presents Kerdoriaith Celtica, Celtica's music. With me in the living room studio is my husband Grant. Say hi, Grant. Hello. Before we get started, I have some sad and happy news to share. Sad news: This is the last episode of Kerdoriaith Celtica. <gasps> but. The good news is that we are retooling it and launching it as a fully independent project called I Dream of Cymru. <laughs> I'll talk a bit more about what that will be like at the end of the episode, so stay with me to the end. In the meantime, are you ready for the word of the day? I am. Our word of the day today is a two-parter. I'm doing the singular and the plural. So same word. Same word. Okay. Singular and plural. The singular is key. Key? Mm-hmm. C-I, pronounced like what you put in a lock. Okay. Key. Key. And the plural is kun. Kun. Which is C-W with a circumflex accent, N. Is that the little up carrot? Yeah. Okay. Wearing a small hat. (laughs) Kun. Kun. Pronounced like the tail end of raccoon, only with a purer oo sound than most English speakers, at least in America, tend to use. And those mean dog and dogs. Oh. (laughs) The word key also mutates to gi in certain situations, um, which I believe every listener will have heard of because I bet you've all heard the word corgi. Oh, yeah. Um, Corgi means dwarf dog. That also means that if you want to be extra snobby and really level up your corgi fandom... You can insist on using the correct plural, mm. which is korgun. Korgun. <laughs> which I don't think anyone in this world actually really insists on. But if you need to set yourself apart from other corgi enthusiasts, <laughs> now you have a way. <laughs> it's a busy pack. Yes. I see what you've done there. Thank you. So our piece for the day is not going to be a song like usual, because today we're doing something a little different, largely because my mental health did not allow me to learn a song in this fortnight, and also because I wanted to give a little bit of a taster for the kind of thing that I'm hoping to add to I Dream of Cymru. Yeah. So I also did want to mark the time of year, do something a little bit spooky for Mm -hmm. Halloween, so I'm doing a short story which I wrote myself, Ooh. based on the Welsh legend of Mast Inos. What, is, what does that mean? It's usually translated as Matilda of the Night. Okay. Um, Mast, Matilda, Inos, the Night. Okay. But the word Mast also means, uh, because that's well, when it's translated from Matilda, it's presumed to be the Cymrisized, the mm. like Welshified version of the name Matilda, because that's not a Welsh name. Okay. Like how Juan is the Hispanic version of John. Yeah. Um, they're the same name with two different linguistic systems attached to them. But the word mast also means a curse or a blight. And since it's a legend, it's impossible to say for sure that yes, one is the correct one. Yeah. There's no um, objectivity when it comes to myth and language and all yeah. that. And there are as it's a folktale, there are so many different versions out there to be found, as I very much discovered. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what caused me to write my very own short story <laughs> that I thought tied a few of those things up nicely in a bundle. But we'll talk more about that in just a moment. So this time of year is 
obviously Halloween for us in America, but it's not the only holiday celebrated on October 31st. The Irish and Scottish Celtic tradition gives us Samhain, and in Wales they have Nos Calan Gaev. Samhain means summer's end, and Nos Calan Gaev means the night before the first of winter, which I like to translate slightly more lyrically as winter's eve. Mm. I don't know that I'm strictly correct, but I've never tried to throw that at a actual welsh speaker but i kind of like it, it seems cool it's poetic yeah i hope it feels at least spiritually correct even if a welsh person would correct me and i would stop saying it then yeah. i feel like i'm on the right track <laughs> there are of course other cultures for whom this time of year holds great significance and in the northern hemisphere a lot of those are centered around this being the withering time of the year how it makes us think of our own mortality everything around us is dying and, and it, it's the hardest time for humans to survive as well exactly so we we're, may not all be here at the end of winter yeah, we're looking at we're looking down the barrel of winter when nothing grows and you just gotta hope that everything you prepared between the end of winter last year and this moment will have been enough and i've always had a bit of a fascination with all things spooky and it turns out so do the welsh hmm. did you know that wales has over 200 distinct death omens. I did, but only because I'm looking at the script. <laughs> Monster. <laughs> I was briefly going to be like, Grant, how many death omens do you think the Welsh have? Like, over under numbers. Ballpark. And then I realized you could see the script. <laughs> Ballpark, ballpark at 200, I'd say. Wow! Yeah. You're incredible. I'm a good guesser. Look at you. But they had over 200 death omens because back then life was even more uncertain than it is now. Although yeah, this exact chapter of human history <laughs> is uh, probably the closest approximation we'll have as modern people yeah. <laughs> to the sense of mortality that our ancestors had. Not as much as now, 2020 excluded. Yes. <laughs> all um, the other years. <laughs> all the other years of our modern life. Um, but yeah, so when it feels like death could be lurking around every corner, any little thing that seemed out of the ordinary and something bad happened on that day, you're gonna glom onto that, right? Yeah, you're gonna see a connection between there was that weird thing and then a tragedy happened. Yeah. So, so you have all of these uh, small mundane kind of death omens like an apple tree blooming out of season or a bird landing on mining equipment and that's supposed to foretell a mining disaster. Hmm. Uh, or smelling roses while you're underground in the mine or hearing odd knocking there are a lot of mining related ones because wales has a lot of coal mining in its history yeah which is a dangerous job and who ends up doing the dangerous dirty jobs specifically the welsh well specifically the welsh in this context but also broadly people who have the least privilege in whatever society they're in ah yes which was the welsh for a good chunk of their history <laughs> So it's so easy for us to look at people who live their life by superstition as foolish or silly, hmm. right? But ultimately, human beings aren't better than our dogs. Like, why does the dog bark at the mailman, Grant? Because the, like, it's that, like, positive reinforcement or whatever of, like, the dog barks at the mailman and, or... A, in the dog's brain, person comes to house, dog barks at person who is definitely an intruder, intruder goes away, this happens every day, and therefore the dog learns, like, 
I must bark at the mailman because every day they come back and try to break into the house and murder all of my loved ones. And every day I bark at them and they leave. And so I'm the best dog. Yeah. So similarly, humans aren't a lot smarter than that. We aren't much different than that. When it comes down to, I want to control a thing I have no control over, we'll grab any little thing. Mm -hmm. Today, we mostly apply that to things like, I'm going to wear my lucky shirt every time my sports team plays. You ultimately did not control whether anybody scored the goal point unit. Mm -hmm. Um, But... You felt like you had some control over it, so you did it. And how much more so when you're doing that about something that you think might save your life. Yeah. And some of those things are also very, like, community building kind of things. Because we all want the same thing or whatever. And so similarly, like in the examples you were saying, like, it wasn't just one sole individual being like, Oh, I saw a bird land on the equipment. I'm not going down there. It was him... Or saying that out loud and other people going like, wait, you saw a bird land on the mining equipment? Oh my god, no. We oh, shouldn't no, do this. down tools. This We're is not a bad idea. <laughs> we um, are all together in this. Yes. But the other role that superstition plays in our modern world is that superstitions are, because they're part of everyday life, because it's to do with whether you're going to work or not, or whether you're planting your field or not, because those are... Uh, interwoven into our everyday mundane lives. Those are the places that old pre-Christian spiritual beliefs have still held on. Hmm. These things are the fossil of some kind of pre-Christian belief. Because we have different superstitions that are related to Christianity. You might cross yourself when you, like, you know, make the sign of the cross over yourself when you go past a graveyard or... Um, clutch a cross or clutch yeah. prayer beads or yeah. um, rosary or whatever. Yeah. You might hold these religious artifacts as talismans against hurt or disease or disaster or just against bad luck because it's connected to your spiritual belief. That's true, too, of pre-Christian beliefs. It's just we don't have the rest of the book anymore. Mm. While it's, again, easy for us to look at superstitious folks as foolish or unintelligent, it's also holding on to a tradition, which feeds into the community thing that you were saying. Yeah. It's, it's a way that a community is keeping an identity alive. So those are some folk belief superstitions. Mm-hmm. But the Welsh also have cryptid superstitions, <laughs> creatures that might, that might appear on a lonely country road kind of things. Or you know, stuff that could more be described as like ghostly or monstery. So I'd like to rattle off a couple of those with you. Uh, there's the very eerie Canoil Corf, which is a corpse candle. Like, which... Go on. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is a light that you might see, like, in the nighttime, you might look out over the countryside and see a light of a certain color. It might be white or blue or red. Mm. Um, and it will seem to, like, travel along the countryside like going on some kind of a path and according to the color of the light that tells you whether it was going to be a man or a woman or a child (laughs) and it's supposedly tracing the path of the like funeral procession of a person who's about to die this man who's about to die so it was some omen of someone's going to die yes someone's going to die soon and 
based on where the uh, Kanoish Korf was seen, it must be in the next town over. Hmm. Or it must be the next farm over from mine. Something like that. Like hmm. those stories always go with, always describe like, oh, and the next day, yeah, woke up. my neighbor was dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Spooky. There's also, uh, similar to that, there's the Tolaith, which is a phantom funeral procession. Okay. So you're walking alone on a dark road at night and you see a ghostly funeral procession pass you by. And, you know, the next day you find out that a your person in your town is, is dead. Your other neighbor is your dead. Your other neighbor is dead. It's going through people like wildfire yeah. right now. Um, Be careful. But unlike the corpse candle you're actually seeing the whole procession there's mm. horses and a wagon and mourners and they're singing sad songs and um <laughs> uh there's also the kahurai which i've heard described as being the closest thing the welsh have to like a banshee okay because in irish tradition the banshee you know you hear the shriek of the banshee before you're going to die or before someone in your circle is going to die or something like that. Your third neighbor. Your third neighbor. It's a very um, close-knit community. Live in a cul-de-sac. Yes. <laughs> oh. But the Kahuraith is, instead of the shriek of a fairy woman, is just this disembodied sound of, like, moaning and groaning in pain. And mm. it's supposed to be the moans and groans of the sick on their deathbed. So there's a person dying of an illness somewhere, and the next day you're going to find out that it's your fourth neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> Who was sick. Or you'll get a letter that your aunt died that night, Whoa. the night you heard the Kahurath. We also have over in the monster section, to tie into our word of the day, what? we all know the Korgi. Mm-hmm. Now meet the Gwishgi. <laughs> the Gwishgi is, you know, if Korgi is a dwarf dog. Mm-hmm. Gwilgi is the twilight dog or twilight hound. And it's supposed to look something like a deer hound. Uh, so a big shaggy creature. Or it's I've also seen it described as like something like a mastiff. But regardless, it's part of the big black dog superstition yeah, that which... exists in Europe and definitely very much in the British Isles. Yeah. So you're going to meet it in the twilight and you've seen it and now you're probably going to die. Well, I mean, to be fair, all of your neighbors have died. You're, all so of your neighbors are dead, and now it's your turn. <laughs> There's only one left. The Gwishki has come for you. Yeah. <laughs> but the Gwishki is not the only ghostly, spooky dog. Um, there are others, some of which will be mentioned in the story that I would like to tell you right now. Oh, well, well, well. Are you ready to hear the story of Martinos? I am. kingdom of Glywasing, there was once a young woman called Matilda. Born the only child of noble parents, she was allowed to do all things that took her fancy, and nothing in the world brought her more joy than to follow the hounds on a hunt. When she was small, her father would take her up before him on his horse, and when she was old enough, he presented her with a horse of her own. From the first day she mounted it, and sensed the power of the animal moving beneath her, felt her hair streaming out behind her, heard the barks and howls of the hounds as they chased their prey, 
She knew nothing in the world could make her feel more alive. When she came to womanhood, for the first time, her parents made her do something whether she liked it or not. They told her she must marry. They already had a young nobleman in mind, Sir Robert Fitzhammon. He was invited to their estate so Matilda could meet her future groom. Matilda agreed, so long as he would go hunting with her. The day he arrived, she met him at the gate, astride her horse, and leading a second one for him. The young man caught his breath when he beheld her, and rode off beside her to join the hunting party. The group meandered over the land until the dogs caught the scent of their quarry. Then the pack seemed to ripple with eagerness and shift into a single-minded entity, quickening their pace and egging each other on with barks and baying. So, too, did the riders catch their feverish glee and call out to one another, galloping faster and faster. The young man watched his bride-to-be transform from a well-bred lady to a wild thing, standing in her stirrups, hair unbound, a gleam of something bloodthirsty in her eyes. In the light of the setting sun, she called to the hounds, her voice like a shriek, to take down the deer! And when she saw the beast's blood dripping from the teeth of her dogs, her exultant yell both exhilarated and shocked Robert. On the much slower ride back, Matilda asked him questions about his home. How many acres of land did he own? What kind of hounds did he keep? How were his stables? And she was satisfied with his answers. She cared very little whether she was married or not. All that mattered was that she would have what made life worth living. But on the night of their wedding, as they lay in bed together, her hair tumbled round him as he waited for sleep to close up his eyes, Robert thought to himself that it wasn't right for other men to see the side of his wife that came out during a hunt. He was consumed with jealousy at the thought of other men gazing on her in that state of wild abandon and unrestrained, almost fiendish pleasure. So the next morning... He invited his eldest tenant, who was a Dean Huspice, a man cunning in the ways of medicine and magic, to breakfast with him and his new wife. As the servants laid the food before them, the Dean Huspice spoke. My lady, your husband has called me here because you have not given him a wedding gift. He gave you the gift of this fine house to live in, servants to command, and beautiful lands to call your own. What will you give him? Matilda responded, "'Husband, did not my father give you my dowry?' "'Ah,' said the cunning man, "'but that is your father's gift. What will you give?' Matilda did not know what to say. None of this was any custom she'd ever heard of, but, not wanting to sour her marriage so quickly, she replied, "'My dear husband, all you need do is ask. I swear that I shall grant you whatever you desire.' That is an excellent gift. I already know his desire. That you shall never go hunting again. Matilda caught her breath as if she'd been struck. Is this truly what you would ask of me, Robert? Her husband only nodded, refusing to look her in the eye. Then the deal is struck, pronounced the old man. Matilda's heart sank. She had sworn it, and the Dean Huspice had witnessed it and she could not break her word. The first year of their marriage wore slowly on. Sir Robert would host hunting parties, and the noble guests would ask him why his wife would never attend. 
for the whole countryside all around knew that it had been her greatest love. And he would say that now he was her greatest love, and she had no need for any other. Months passed in this way, Matilda's spirit withering inside her more and more each time she heard the bark of a dog or the jingle of a harness. Then one day, Robert received a message from the Prince of Gloessing, summoning him to his court, and the young man wasted no time in preparing to set off for this important journey. Alas, husband, murmured Matilda, I am too ill to travel so far with you. You see, I have grown so pale and so thin this past year. And she took to her bed, too weary even to wave him off. Or so he thought. For the following morning, she rose up, color in her cheeks for the first time since her wedding day. She dispatched the servants to every noble neighbor. Tell them Lady Matilda calls them to the hunt. By the afternoon, a great crowd of them were gathered on horseback, each saying how strange an invitation this was to receive. They all fell silent when Matilda herself appeared on her horse, leading the hounds. My noble guests, today I return to my greatest love! And a shout arose from the crowd. But I must ask each of you to do me a service. You must never tell a soul that we rode out together today. And they all swore it with one voice. Then let us ride, cried Matilda, rearing her horse as the dogs lunged forward, searching for the scent of a deer. The party rode all through the afternoon, until the rays of the sun began to look thin and red. Many of the riders turned toward home, afraid to continue the hunt in the failing light. The quarry had proved elusive, and a mist was beginning to creep around the hooves of the steeds. Matilda did not bid them farewell, her eyes fastened on the hounds. At last, she heard the lead dog give a yelp that told her their prey was near. The pack and the remaining riders took on that feverish, ravenous speed and fervor. Matilda stood in her stirrups, felt the wind toss her hair violently behind her, and a primal sound, almost like a howl, began at the back of her throat. That howl suddenly transformed into a wail of pain as her horse missed its footing and together they fell to the earth. She heard a sickening crack as the animal's weight landed on her right leg. Her companions gave up the chase immediately, recalled the dogs, and took her back through the treacherous fog to her stately home. Through clenched teeth, she forbade any of them to send for the Dean Husbis to see to her injury. That night, delirious with pain, she saw a vision of a tall man riding in a curious chariot drawn by black horses, beckoning to her until the mist swallowed him up. In his wake, a pair of huge white hounds with red ears followed. She lay in agony all through the night and the next day. That next evening, her husband returned. But when he saw that she was lying there with a broken leg, he knew that she had deceived him and broken her promise. Without a word to her, he swept from the room, anger darkening his visage. Summon the dean, Hespis, he barked to a servant. Soon the old man appeared at the house, with herbs and implements in his hands. Matilda waited, breathing raggedly as she heard the two men whispering just outside the room. She could do nothing to escape. She was trapped in her marriage bed. Finally, they entered. What will you do with me? she demanded, but they said nothing. 
the wizened man began making markings on the floor as Robert placed certain talismans around the bed. Answer me! At this, Robert smirked. I suppose you just couldn't help yourself. Just got carried away. Well, carried away is exactly what you'll be. I have been cursed with a selfish wife who will not do the one thing I asked of her. With that, the two men began to chant. Matilda felt the whole house shaking. Suddenly, the roof split wide open. Her hair was swirling around her, caught in the force of a mighty wind. The gale grew stronger and stronger until it lifted her right out of the house, buffeting her broken body, carrying her high into the sky as her screams of anguish rang out. Just as her pain and fear grew so wretched, she thought she must die. Before her appeared the man in the chariot she had dreamed of the night before. In that moment, she understood. He was Aran, the lord of Anun, the other world. And he had appeared to her because she was going to die. He motioned a courteous invitation to the place beside him in the chariot, and held the reins as if offering them to her. The lady stretched out her hand and took them. Her leg no longer pained her as she took her place in the chariot. Lady Malt, I have never seen so masterful a hunter. I hope you will look after my hounds for me, he said, and a pack of white dogs with red ears appeared before them in the night sky. Malt, she repeated. That name means curse, blight. That's what my husband said I was. My lady, replied the lord of Anun. Does not the deer think the hound a curse for taking his life? Yet the hound is simply doing as nature commands. Likewise, you only ever did as your nature commanded you. And now, you shall do so for all time. My coon Anun, track those who are about to die. Some there are who will welcome your coming but many will run from you. But isn't that the point of the hunt? And with a smile he vanished. Then I shall be the curse that comes in the night. Maltinos is my name, she called out. The pack howled in jubilation, and she howled with them. There eventually came a night when Sir Robert Fitzhammond heard a pack of dogs like none he'd ever heard before, baying for blood, and when they caught him, he saw behind them the woman with the wild hair and a bloodthirsty gleam in her eye, crying out in exultation as his soul left his body. And to this day, you may hear her hunting in the night, especially in the withering time of the year. If you are her quarry, you'll hear the barks and howls of the Kuh Nanun. When their baying is ringing in your ears, they are actually far back on your trail. When they sound far distant, as if they've lost your scent, they are actually close behind, about to take you out of this world and into the next. It is up to you whether her coming is a curse to end your life, or simply the arrival of Matilda of the Night, leading you beyond the veil. That was the tale of <laughs> Maltinos. I liked it a lot. Uh, oh, thank you, babe. Yeah, I liked 
I liked the horse riding bits. I liked, because we've also separately been reading some of the the Floyd Alexander or Prudine the, Chronicles. the Prudine Chronicles and there's obviously there's some crossover there between just because you're both pulling from wealth mythology and stuff so that was fun to hear characters and things that I've heard of before although in Prudine Aran is painted as like the devil yeah he's the villain of the piece but uh, in older Welsh things he's just the lord of the other world and, and it's, yeah. it's where you go when you die, but like, it's not hell until the Christians showed up and then it had to be hell. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like that happened a lot where like death and the afterlife or whatever are either are just sort of like neutral in a lot of older religions. But in Christianity, it's super negative. It's either yeah. very positive or very negative. Yes. Um, and likewise with Greek mythology, Hades yeah. became a more sanitary way to say hell for Christians. Yeah. But like it's just the god of death, not a, the evil guy. <laughs> yeah, it's just where you go if you aren't a like like a super heroic person or whatever. Yeah. You're just dead. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> like everyone else. Something I came across in my researching this folk character is that uh so the Kun Anun, the hounds of Anun are supposed to sound like their bark is different from other dogs Hmm. and descriptions sound like they might have meant it sounds like the honking of geese Um, because like oh what's that weird sound in the sky dad i'm a child yeah (laughs) oh you know what kid it's the super spooky hounds of a noon they're gonna come get you the death dogs they always come at this time of year (laughs) so you better get inside (laughs) like when your older brother tells you that the basement is, in fact, full of gremlins, and they'll eat you if you go in the basement at night. Yeah. <laughs> We've also done that forever. <laughs> I discovered much too late to be of any great benefit to myself that a folk group called Barlow Cree hmm. wrote a song about Maltenos, oh. um, which is really fun, and the chords of which uh, I used in the like intro-outro for that. Nice. Um, so I strongly suggest that you check out that rad song. Mm. Um, I'll put a link in the web page. Um, so you can check out Barlow Cree and their very lovely song. Wherever there were, like, details of specificity that would make the story better. Like, where in Wales is this and stuff. I used details from the song mm. as a, like, well, they use the... Name of the town, Rubaina. So I'm going to say it's in... Rubaina would have been in the ancient Welsh kingdom of Glywysing. So that's where it takes place. Yeah. (laughs) And stuff like that. So that was fun. Nice. It's a little nod, a little tip of the hat I was doing to some other folk musicians. So that does it for Cerdoriaeth Celtica. If you have enjoyed what you've heard here, I hope you'll come check out my new independent version of this podcast, I Dream of Cymru. It'll be a lot like this. Each episode will feature a song, or a poem, or a folk tale from one of the Celtic nations. And I'll still be talking about how that piece of art makes me think about ways we can learn from our past. The balance will still tip heavily toward Wales, because you know I continue to be obsessed with this small, ancient, fascinating country. But I will be making a greater effort to branch out and get all the Celtic cousins some time in the spotlight. 
because I'm curious and excited to learn how to sing a song in Manx or learn about the phonetics of Cornish. And I know there have got to be some Scotland fans out there who want to hear something in the Gaelic, or at the very least, some Rabbi Barnes. So if you want to help me build up a list of episode ideas, please email me at idreamofkimri at gmail.com. That's idreamof, the way you're picturing it, Kymri, C-Y-M-R-U, at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Or find me on Instagram and Facebook at I Dream of Kimri. Same spelling, C-Y-M-R-U. Until then, please keep donating to bail funds, participating in protests, having hard conversations with your loved ones, and making a plan for your ballot and how you're getting to the polls. Thank you so much for listening. Black Lives Matter. Diolch in Vaur Amrando. Mai bywydai ddi yn bwysig. Hoyl. <laughs>